0: Judea, and he parted again. Uh, he departed for the Galilee, a different region in Israel, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, it's the middle of the day at this point, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour, or noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had already gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The ethnic tension, the gender tension is thick right now. We'll talk about it in a minute. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink? You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, But you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who built this well? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, probably shaken, probably with the hair on the back of her neck standing up, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain here in Samaria, but you say, or you Jews say that the real temple, Jerusalem, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain here or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and in fact it is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back from the village, and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but nobody dared say, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, and she went back to her town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans, jumping down to verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him, Jesus, to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I have Stephen's prayer in my mind as he heard the rain falling and saw it as uh, your grace, how abundant how it just covers everything and washes over. Uh, You bathed this woman in your mercy. And you set her free from her shame. You set her free from the futility of seeking life in other places. You are the same you were then that you are tonight. And so would you be the same living water for us tonight? Come now and bathe us. In your mercy, we pray in your name. Amen. I have a little trivia question for you. Do you remember what the slogan for Sprite is? You might not, because who drinks Sprite? I mean, that's the initial problem. But the slogan is, image is nothing, thirst is everything. Obey your thirst, right? Now, back in 1996, Coca-Cola that owned Sprite had a problem. Nobody drank Sprite. I don't know how the problem got fixed because it still seems to be the case, but nobody, like really nobody drank Sprite back then. So they hired this really top end New York ad agency to kind of figure out how can you market this better, especially to kind of your age demographic. And so this ad agency uh, came up with that slogan that led to immediate 10% increase in sales, 95% of consumers who who were asked Is this an effective ad campaign? Does it make you want to go drink Sprite said yes. Now the funny thing is I read a story recently about where that slogan came from. The guy at the New York ad agency that came up with the slogan actually heard it in a a political speech from Ronald Reagan in the 1970s when he was running for governor. And Reagan said it one day during a stump speech. It was hot, it was outside, he was just sweating, he was parched. And uh, he says uh, to the crowd, he grabs a glass of water. And he is an actor, if you didn't know. And he's famous for kind of these little quips and jokes. So he, he, uh, he kind of, at the end of his speech, takes a drink of water. And he looks to the crowd. And he says, speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything. Always remember to obey your thirst. Now, the reason he said it in that context is basically this. Stump speeches are a dime a dozen. I know every politician comes to your town, stands on a soapbox, and tells you some platform, but if you don't remember anything else from what I've said to you today, you remember to obey your thirst. And again, what he meant in that context is, what brought you here today? What thirst? What desire for change, for political change, for for new leadership, new ideas? What thirst, what longing brought you here? You remember that longing and you elect somebody that'll quench the thirst for your desire for change. We're thirsty people. The reason the slogan worked for Sprite, apparently, is because we're thirsty people. The reason it worked for Ronald Reagan and all those elections that he won is because we're thirsty people. That resonates with us, it makes sense to us that we have thirsts, hungers, senses of deficits, lackings, desires that we kind of chase things to fill them to satisfy it or quench it so john chapter four what i just read a second ago is a very long story it's the longest conversation between jesus and somebody in all the gospels Uh, what this is about is a real life encounter of a thirsty woman and jesus the living water and she's kind of offered to us by john the author as a case study and he's saying where do you relate You're thirsty, too. uh, The contours of your struggles, your desires, are the same as hers. So he invites you to say, where do you see yourself in this passage? And then where do you see Jesus in your story? Here's what we're going to do. We've got to do a little bit of background work before we circle back to the passage. Okay, so we're going to take a kind of a 30,000-foot view of where this thirst that we have comes from, and then we'll go back to the passage uh, to see where it is there. So let me cut to the chase. When Jesus, in this passage, is talking to this woman, which would have been just an anonymous conversation nobody ever would have known about, except for what happened. When he's talking to her, and he calls himself living water, and he says, hey, if you knew who was talking to you, uh, he would have given you the gift of God, which is living water. When he uses that phrase, he isn't making this up on the spot. He is referring back to a very famous uh, message that the prophet Jeremiah gave to God's people, Israel. Back in Jeremiah 2, if you have your Bible flipped there, you've probably heard of this. It's still pretty famous today. What Jeremiah said uh, is this. Whoops, let me find it. I had it written out here because my bookmark fell out. He said, I had, my people have committed two evils. Let's go back and find this real quick. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewed out, or dug out wells, cisterns, retaining ponds for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, living water, the fountainhead of water, and instead, They have looked for water and they're kind of building these little catch pools to catch water wherever they can find it. Jesus is comparing himself, referring back to that moment in Jeremiah. And he's saying to you and me, there's something that sin does to your heart. Even if you don't believe in sin, you're like, that's such an antiquated idea. Just hear me out. Because the experience of what I'm saying, I know you'll resonate with, I know you'll feel is true. But Jesus is saying, Sin causes something to go haywire in your heart. And it causes you and me to seek in kind of horizontal things, in the things that God made, a divine spark, a taste of glory, a taste of awe, a a taste of transcendence. We look kind of in the created world for something that's only found in God himself. This is why God says, you've forsaken me. It's personal to God. You've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, the source of water, and you've dug for yourself this kind of stagnant, putrid, nasty retaining pond to catch water wherever you can get it. And this is where we look for life in. Now look, let me bring this back down to earth real quick. This is a massive failure in love, sin is really a massive failure to love. It's a massive failure to love God. It's a massive failure to love other people. And what Jeremiah the prophet is saying in Jeremiah 2 is, these two evils my people have committed, they have forsaken, they have left loving God. Um, Think about this. I think Anna, my wife, is here. Are you, babe? Where are you? I saw my, I have a little app that tells me when she leaves the house. It's kind of creepy, but I know she's here. She's here somewhere in the building or in spirit. Uh, If I told you or any married person said, I married Anna to kind of quench this desire for companionship and adventure and kids and a family that I had. if, if, If you have a brain at all in your head, you're thinking, what? What a narcissist. You married her to get stuff from her? you married her to kind of satisfy this craving for companionship or kids or family or adventure, you would rightly perceive that I'm using her for her stuff. What I was really in love with wasn't her, it's all the stuff she does for me. It's a failure to love. If instead of loving her and saying, I married my wife because I wanted her, All the benefits, all that side stuff comes as a result of having her and her having me. It was a desire for her that made me want to marry her. All that other stuff was on the side. God's people were basically like, we want your stuff. You are a creature who kind of lives a life, a posture towards God, and so am I, that basically says, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want the stuff you do for me, but I don't want you. I don't desire you. Fountain of life, the source of water, soul quenching, soul satisfying water itself. I want it in the stuff that you made. Now let me ask you another hypothetical. Let's run with this marriage metaphor that you should have seen through and said you're using her if you married her for that reason. Imagine you did marry someone. Let's say you followed through with that desire and you married someone for what they would do for you, for stuff they would give you. Um, What would happen to the relationship over time? That part's obvious, right? It's a parasitic relationship. It's going to lead to a lot of disappointment, unfulfillment, fighting, maybe maybe moving apart from each other or separation. What would happen to you? You're the one who married the other person for what they could do for you. What would happen to you? Soul-crushing disappointment because you're like, pretty early on, and you're like, they're not doing it for me, because they're a a person, they're not God. They're They're not scratching that itch. And so you just kind of have a life of emptiness, futility. Did I marry the wrong person? Why am I in this? And let me ask you one final question to get to the point. What would your relationship feel like with the things that you married your spouse to get? Does that make sense? What would would your relationship be to those things that you married her, married him to get? So let's say if you married her or him for companionship, but you didn't really ever want them, you didn't desire them, you wanted companionship, you wanted to have a partner, something to do on a Friday night, adventure. Are you really gonna get companionship in that vulnerable intimacy and friendship, that just deep soul fellowship that you wanted? No right? Pretty obviously no. What if you married your spouse just for sex and intimacy and nakedness and that's it? Your desires were never really pegged on her or on him but that. Are you going to get all that sex signals, this this vulnerable, tender openness to each other, this letting myself be fully seen and loved, and the other letting herself be fully seen and loved. Are you gonna get that? No, you're gonna be trapped in the loneliest marriage in America if you married her just for intimacy, just for sex, but not for her. What happens to our relationship with God? And what happens to our relationship with the stuff that you and I are pursuing? The horizontal things, the created things, when we don't want him, but just the stuff. It spoils, it putrefies, it stagnates, just like the metaphor in Jeremiah 2 said it would. Why? Because all these created things, they leak. They're like colanders. They weren't made to satisfy your soul. They were made to bring you joy. They were blessings of God. They're the gifts of God, but they weren't. He is your sustenance. He is your life. He is food for your soul not the stuff that he made. So what'll happen to those things? They'll fall apart, and you'll end up being stuck in disappointment, or stuck in shame, or stuck in a sense of futility, or stuck in a sense of maybe you're still in the hamster wheel, maybe the next time, maybe the next relationship, maybe the next thing I give myself to, I'll get it right. What are the things for us? You try to satisfy your soul's thirst and physical beauty, and you'll feel cursed by the nose you have, or the teeth you have, or the toes you have, and you'll spend your life hiding them. Every time you smile, your hand goes over your mouth. You love the face mask thing because you're like, I was ashamed of the way I look because I'm, I'm looking to to quench my soul and how I look to other people. Or as you age, you'll spend more and more of your money trying to lock 18 in place forever. And gravity won't agree with you. And reality won't agree with you. What if you try to satisfy your thirst, your soul's thirst in the waters of control? And you think if I just tweak this schedule enough, if I just maximize and optimize productivity enough, I'll have the perfect day. And I'm a productivity guy, I like control. Y- y'all know if you're, if you're like this, you know it's never just about the perfect schedule. You, It's like nirvana if you reach that point. I had the perfect day. And it's not just things were efficient. It's I feel amazing. I feel safe. I feel good. Everything in the world is right. It's a soul satisfaction that we seek. If you try to do that in your schedule, you try to optimize your productivity, and you're seeking to rest your soul in that, you'll never have enough time You'll be 80 years old, still like just now, wishing there was a 25th hour to every day. You'll always feel stressed. You'll never feel productive. You'll be cursed by those senses of I'm never getting enough done. What about the waters of sex? You seek to satisfy your soul in these waters of sexual intimacy with guys or girls, boyfriend, girlfriend, hookup, attention from the guys, attention from girls. You'll never be secure in the relationship because you'll never get enough affirmation, enough positive comments, enough pursuit. Maybe yesterday you did, but today's a whole new day, and it's just kind of leaking out of you, and it's got to be filled up again and filled up again, and so your boyfriend starts to think, or your girlfriend starts to think, man, this is not the kind of relationship I want to be in, because she's like really clingy, or he's really clingy. He always has to be with me, always is like sucking life out of me. Do you see, is it making sense in whatever the realm, whatever the horizontal thing, the created thing, the God-given thing that you're seeking soul satisfaction in, the waters of life, living water, it leaks out. And so we either on a hamster wheel of addiction, just next time, next time, next time, fill it up, fill it up, fill it up. Or you give up, you throw in the towel. You're like, there's no water anywhere. And you become a cynic. Now back to the passage. Back to the passage now that we see ourselves in it a little bit more. What did this dear woman dive into to quench her thirst? And what was the outcome, both between her and the thing she was pursuing, and her and God and her and other people? That's really what this account is all about. What was she seeking? What was she after? What was her living water? Men. Attention from men, financial security from men. In that context, ladies, a man was your financial security. He was your retirement package, your bank account, your your three meals on the table every day, your protection from kind of a society pressing in on you that didn't value you. He was everything. And so, for this dear woman, she was looking to satisfy her soul in marriage, or husbands, or men, or attention from men, or sex. Jesus draws this attention out when he asks her later on in the passage, go get your husband. And She says, I don't have a husband. I'm not married. And Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And he draws attention to that. Jesus is drawing her attention to the leaky cistern that she has dug for herself that has never worked, but she thought the sixth marriage would fix it. The seventh marriage would fix it. Do you know the stats on remarriage? Every time a man or a woman gets remarried, the likelihood of divorce doubles and just exponentially increases. So you've been married three times, you've been married four times, you're looking at odds of 80 to 90% likelihood of divorce happening, that's statistics. And it proves out what's happening with her. Think about that, five marriages, five weddings to be planned, five first dates, Five, is this the right guy for me? Is he gonna take care of me? Is he gonna protect me? I think he's the one. I think he's different than the last guy or the last three guys or the last four guys. And every time you go through that, you're a little bit more scared. What if this doesn't work out again like all the others? I'm gonna be that girl, that woman in the town that just right before everybody is shown to be just absurd, silly, a failure. Five times of having a man walk back home and saying, I'm out of here, and dumping her like a dog, and her being left with nothing again in a society that already had nothing for her, kicked back out to the curb. What happens to your heart five times after that happening? It's unbelievable. Even today, that would be something that would come with just massive shame and stigma. And we know she's drenched in shame. There's a reason she's at this well in the hottest part of the day. Rush hour at wells in first century Israel, probably like rush hour at wells today. Early in the morning, late at night when it's cool and in the shade, because you're there for a while just pulling up pail after pail of water to take back to your house for all the day's functions. She's there at noon, the hottest part of the day, when none of the other village women are there. She couldn't be around the village women They had seen too much. They knew too much. The gossip chain always got back to her. Of course, she overheard their comments, their giggles, their points to their children. And it just, it had put her heart, her soul through a meat grinder. It changed the way she dressed. It changed her daily schedule. It changed where she would go, where she wouldn't go, who she'd be friends with, who she wouldn't. It changed how she talked to men what she thought a man was gonna do to her. Shame, like we see in her, like we see in ourselves, affects every detail of your life. It's like a liquid, not a solid. When shame gets in you, it it just like fills you up and kind of permeates to every little piece inside of you, down to the detail of your schedule, down to the detail of you lifting up your hand over your mouth to cover your teeth because they're jagged and you don't like it and you wish they were different. Every little detail. You won't wear flip-flops because that toe goes this way. Every little detail. You won't go to a community group because what if somebody brings up their sexual past and it shines a light on your sexual past. And so you just, that's just a no-go place. You don't go there. You steer conversations away from the places you're ashamed. And I do too. Well, how's the weather? You hear hurricanes coming? Did you hear the case numbers at UGA were a lot lower? We are experts in steering conversations so far away from any raw place of shame because she's drenched in it and we're drenched in it. Brene Brown has kind of become somewhat of a, I, I guess, our culture shame expert. She does a lot of TED Talks. She's kind of done the Oprah circuit back in the day when that was a thing. She had a helpful definition or distinction, I think, though. She said, the difference between shame and guilt is the difference between I am bad and I did something bad. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Guilt says I did a dirty thing. Shame says I am dirty. My critics are right. I'm worthless. My critics are right. There's, I never get it right. I always drop the ball. I always botch it. I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. That's what shame says. It is insidious. It is piercing. It is dark. It is all-pervasive. And shame comes from these repeated failures to find soul-satisfying water in created things. It corrodes our souls. It corrodes our hearts. It corrodes our relationships. And it doesn't just come from our repeated failures to kind of get some water, squeeze some life-giving water out of these things that we run to. It also comes from stuff that happens to us. So this woman is also the victim of shame put on her by other people. Because people tend to find value, soul-satisfying value in their race, depending on whatever culture you're in, there's good races and there's bad races, good ethnicities and bad ethnicities. And if you're in one of these, you're good. And if you're in one of these, you are bad. You are dirty. It was a huge factor in her day, Samaritans and Jews. The text says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. Jesus says the Father is seeking worshipers like this woman. He chose to go through Samaria. No Jewish rabbi like Jesus would have willingly gone through Samaria. It's kind of like a bad neighborhood. You will go out of your way to get around it. And it wasn't that Samaria was dangerous, it was that Samaria was dirty theologically, spiritually, sexually, relationally, everything, every Jew looked down at the Samaritans. They're like a subclass of humans. That's what she's jabbering on with Jesus about. We worship on this mountain or this mountain in my region or in your region, at our temple or your temple. And he's like, she's like, how are you a Jew even talking to me and a woman? Her gender, her ethnicity, all these things, her past, were cards stacked against her. And many of us in this room, you feel societal shame heaped on you. You feel smaller than everybody else because of the moment in history you're living in, the country you're living in. Shame is an onion. It makes you cry, it tastes bitter, and there's so many layers to it. And it holds you captive and it held her captive. And so when Jesus starts to try to press in, she won't let him in. Jesus asked these questions. He's like, if you had asked for living water, I would have given it to you. And she doesn't understand what he's talking about. She kind of responds with a superficial response of like, well, I, I kind of would like better plumbing because then I wouldn't have to come here every day in the middle of the day. It would be awesome to just be able to stay in my house. She's thinking some kind of new faucet thing. And then he, he asks her the husband question. And when he, when he asks her that question, when, when Jesus presses his finger on that thing in your life that you're like, oh, oh, that hurts. I don't like to talk about that. I, I do that in the dark because I don't want God to see. When, when God puts his thumb on that thing and it won't let up, you have the same decision to make that this woman had to make. Do I run back into the waiting arms of my shame? Do I go back into the closet, back into the darkness and hide? That was her first choice. Oh, I don't have a husband, I'm not married. But then Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've been married five times and the fifth didn't work out either because the guy you're living with now, he won't even commit to you. So she has a decision to make that you have a decision to make. Run back to the waiting arms of your shame or sit and stay and wonder what this Jesus is going to do with what he's seen inside of you. He sees through you. And You sit and you stay, and you ask, what's he going to do now that he has seen me as I am? What she discovered is instead of running back to the waiting arms of her shame, she ran to the waiting arms of her maker, of her God. And for the first time ever, she knew what love felt like. Imagine that, a woman who's been married five times, she of all people should be an expert. For the first time ever, felt the release and the peace and the cleansing of being seen for who she was, but not kicked to the curb. She was so expecting condemnation from this Jewish rabbi. A man, he had the power, he had the influence. She was so on a hair trigger to expect to just be, just put through another meat grinder by Jesus. But he saw her, and he drew her out, and he helped her know herself, and he helped her know him. Tim Keller, I've said this to you before, but he said, to be loved, but not known. To be loved, but not known, is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known, but not loved, is your greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is well a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. But especially if you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus. He's not your living water. You don't see that promise and hope in him. You find it somewhere else. You need to hear me say something. Sitting with Jesus as he examines you, as your God, your maker and your judge, the one who sees through you, is an unsettling experience because he knows you. Kurt Thompson, psychiatrist said this, shames, healing, or the healing of shame involves the counterintuitive act of turning toward what you're most terrified of. We fear the shame that we'll fear when we speak of that very shame. In some circumstances, we anticipate this vulnerable exposure to be so great that it will almost be life-threatening but it is in the movement toward another, toward connection with someone who is safe, that we come to know life and freedom from this prison. Jesus is both simultaneously this terrifying presence because he is God and he knows everything. There is no darkness to him. Even the darkness is light to him. And so he's unsettling to people like us with pasts and skeletons in the closet, people who hide, people who deflect conversation, and at the same time he's the safest person you'll ever spend a minute with. Because he came seeking worshipers like her and like us to pardon, to cleanse, to save. I want to end here. I want to end kind of with this, this, this last kind of Lingering on a thought or a a, a big idea for us. And it's, how can Jesus be living water for you? Do I mean that in some metaphorical, sentimental way? Like, oh, you have this leaky cup and it comes out, but guess what? Jesus fills the hole in your heart. That's sentimentality. That's emotionalism. Um, That's metaphorical. It's symbolic. What do I mean? What does Jesus mean when he says he will give you the gift of God? which is water that never leaves you thirsty again, that satisfies, that brings peace and steadiness in life. How is Jesus, how is this living water soul healing and shame lifting and sin pardoning? To be living water for you and me, Jesus had to go to battle with the source of your shame which is sin, which is guilt, which is all the ways you and I fall short. He had to go to battle with these dark powers and forces that keep us in hiding and keep us enslaved and keep us under the shadow of condemnation. He had to go to battle with the things that cause our thirst, the insanity of sin itself, who will send you away from a well of fresh water and toward a puddle. He had to go to battle with all of those things which are so far outside of your and my league, so much above our pay grade. And where he did that is on the cross. John will tell us a few chapters later, John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, this is Jesus dying on the cross, after knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst." And so a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they, the centurions, the soldiers, the executors, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received and tasted the bitter wine, he said, It's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So that is Jesus drinking the toxic, putrid, bitter, stagnant, Fatal waters that you and I have spent a lifetime chasing and building aqueducts into our hearts from. And he drinks that. And he gives you water that wells up from within. Not an external water, not a a pill you're supposed to take, but something that's rooted and planted inside of you and wells up and erupts from within you and never leaves you thirsty again. He who is living water, he who is living water, gave it all away to the thirsty that you might drink and that it might come inside of you. Forbes magazine did an article two or three days ago. The title of the article was A Billionaire Who Wanted to Die Broke and is now officially broke. The billionaire is Chuck Feeney. He's 89 years old, and for the past 40 years, by the way, he was the founder of Duty Free Shops. You've seen that in the airports all around the world? He's the founder of that. For the past 40 years, he has been systematically giving away all of his wealth, $8 billion over the past 40 years. His goal was to give it all away before he died. Unlike most rich philanthropists who set up a foundation, hey, I want my money now, but when I'm dead, I'll kind of set up a a trust to give some grants to people. He spent his lifetime giving away every penny he ever earned. At this point, the article said he's given away 375% more money than his current net wealth. And he gave it all away anonymously. And so one of the richest billionaires in America spent himself out of the Billionaires League. And he's no longer even a rich man. And he will die poor just like he wanted. You have in Jesus Christ, the one who's portrayed in this passage, the Jesus who's revealed in the Scriptures, who's alive today and talking to you now through his word. You have in Jesus the richest person to ever walk the earth and who spent his life not hoarding it up to give it uh, one day in the future, but spent his life giving it all away. And he died poor just how he wanted it because it had all been given away. The Father is seeking worshipers such as her, such as you, such as me. For some of you, what you do with tonight's passage will mean scrutinizing and examining all the leaks and the stuff that you're running after, your schedule, sex, intimacy, partying, whatever it is, productivity. Some of you have tasted living water and you're alive And what you do with this passage tonight is we learn to share water with every single friend of yours who is thirsty, existentially thirsty, spiritually thirsty, soul thirsty. And you go back to the very source of shame. You go back to your very townspeople, your tribe, your community, your fraternity, your sorority, your roommates, and you say, hey, you're thirsty. And I've tasted living water. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, feed us, give us this water, satisfy our souls. We need it. We need you to be living water to us. We need courage to share you, the living water, with thirsty friends. We need to come back to you to drink again. Help us do that. We pray in your name.